0: I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot... The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note: viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. A masterpiece. What do you reckon? What should happen to him? Fucking kill him. A triumph. What? Thing? You're going to go and kill the rest of the world? Brilliant. Extraordinary. With a smash hit box office of $1.3 million, directed by Justin Kurzel in his directorial debut, winner of Critics Week at Cannes Film Festival and Chicago International Film Festival, this is Snowtown. A dark journey of addiction and violence. A story of bodies barrels. An ending without resolution. But this isn't fiction. This is real life. This is Snowtown.
3: Welcome back to another I Could Murder" podcast The podcast that makes you go Mmm I'm talking murder Manhunts Mystery Mayhem The macabre Mildly funny banter And also me And Mr Ben Carter
4: That was so good Thank you so much It's great to be here And it's great to be back In Australia
3: yeah, we are back in Australia once again with today's episode. And today, well, before we get into that, Ben, uh, where can people find us if they want to follow us on the socials? Let's run through
4: the honours. Um, so, Instagram at Could a Pod. Yes. Twitter at Could Murder a Pod. Yes.
3: We've also got a Facebook um, at Could Murder a Podcast on Facebook, and um, we also have a Patreon for anyone who's hungry for extra content. We do Minnesotas over there, and we let you guys uh, pick a Minnesota and vote for it. So uh, we've got thirty-four cases on there. 35, a lot thank, big thank you to anyone already supporting us over there and big thank you to anyone who's
4: gonna and just by becoming one of our Patreon backers you also unlock exclusive discount to our merchandise store which is www.icmap.store
3: yes indeed you know over there we've got badges we've got stickers we've got hats we've got a magazine all right? got a lot of things over there and any support there as well is very much appreciated how you doing Danny? Uh, very good thanks very good thank you very much Perfect. That's all we needed, the energy, the energy there. Today's case, Ben, like you said, we are in Australia once again. We were there for Catherine Knight before? We were. It was very eerie, and I'm sorry to say, this case is no less eerie.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's clearly eerie this week. Um, very, very bleak, very dark case. Um, Research-wise, this was up there in terms of um, depravity. Yep. Um, Another fancy word Do you want to put one on there? Um uh, uh, Disillusional Pardon? No. Dark hmm?
3: Dark Dark Is so that why you're dressed in black today?
4: Could could well be. Could well be. An homage to a dark case. Yep. So this week is the case of the Snowtown Murders, also known as the Bodies in the Barrels Murders. And it's a it's a dark one. It's one we've had quite a few requests to cover kind of consistently since we started the podcast. I've got a couple of different memories of this case. Um, back in 2010, went on a little uh, Greyhound bus up and down the uh, the east coast of Australia. A lot of people talking about it then. And secondly, back when DVDs were, were a thing. Still, you still can get them. Back when DVDs were an acceptable Christmas present um, I used to get my brother who's big into his horror movies uh, kind of four or five DVDs every year I just used to Google terms like creepiest movie ever scariest movie ever darkest movie er ever and uh, Snowtown came up frequently I watched it and that stuck with me that movie very bleak very haunting and uh Today we're going to tell you all about that case. Yeah, I've
3: seen the film as well. I remember watching it back in the day and it, it's, yeah. It stays with you. It does stay with you. Interesting fact about the film, a lot of the uh, actors in it are just locals from the uh, the town itself and not actually trained actors. Take that to the bank. Anyway, as we
4: foreshadowing.
3: always... Foreshadowing. Two words that people have been saying they don't want you to say this series is doxing and foreshadowing. <laughs> and I, for one
4: on their side (laughs) so i definitely don't recall it having such a high uh victim count uh that was one thing that stood out but just every person in this case is is to an extent somewhat of a victim it's a very dark case and i was also surprised by the uh the victim count one thing to further outline how bleak this week's case is is in the documentaries or the the informative kind of suitable for most audience documentaries there was a recreation and i winced at how horrible the recreation was and that was just for kind of one of those kind of i think it was a 15 plus audience one but still i had me had me squeamish tom had me very squeamish okay
3: enough about you should we get in the case so for this case it's as well it's a bit different to a normal kind of case because usually there's one perpetrator Mm. this is actually kind of a a group the group kind of changes as it goes which we'll go into but there's kind of two people that stayed a constant within that john bunting and um Robert Wagner, and we are going to go into their background and kind of see where the paths crossed and also see if there's any red flags along the way that led them to where they ended up.
4: So John Justin Bunting was born on the 4th of September 1966, and he was born, Tom, without a sense of smell.
3: So whilst doing the research for this, I saw that as well. He was born without it, but also it's been kind of debated whether he had an illness for a short time when he was a child, and then he lost the sense of smell. Mm. And the thing about the, the sense of smell with Bunting this would actually weirdly kind of become a bit of a superpower later on I'd say.
4: So bunting uh, is is the uh, the kind of ringleader of the group. I mean and if you look at him and look at pictures of him before and after his arrest, he doesn't strike you as the most kind of traditional leader. Very charismatic, very manipulative, but we'll get onto that. Um, he was born in Inala Queensland uh, which is a uh, suburb just south of Brisbane and it's um, well a very much a working class multicultural uh, part of Brisbane which was apparently a hotbed for crime at the time.
3: Yeah and lots of unemployment so it's a difficult pl- kind of place to grow up and also you know you witnessing things day to day which can also you know affect your kind of thought process and the way way you view things so he was raised in a kind of yeah a slightly rougher area of Australia.
4: They initially kind of Built in, in Arla up as the idea of being a kind of a thriving community where there'd be lots of opportunities for people, it was a place to house their retired military servicemen and women as well, but in the end it turned into somewhat of a ghetto. Bunting was the only child of Tom and Jan Bunting, who were two working class individuals. Anything they had, he was the only child. So anything they had in the family, they would give to him. But it was it was said that his mother very much ruled the household. She towered over the father. The mother was a secretary and the father worked in a printing factory.
3: So during his childhood, this is all straight away a bit of a concern. Um, he used to kind of like to torture insects by putting them into little bits of acid. I'm just kind of watching them just slowly dissolve. If he kind of yeah, would make different concoctions to see what would happen to them. Again, this is something that would come up later on. It reminded me when I was little, I used to often try and make George's marvellous medicine by oh, taking some shampoo and like different creams. I wondered where you were going there. I
0: did exactly the same time, by the way. That's, did you? That is amazing.
3: Yeah, you just make it, like pour it onto the thing, stir it up. And I always thought if I have a bite of this, I'd probably something, yeah, you know, something would happen, but I didn't just waste, wasting my parents' money there. <laughs> but, um, good memories. Good
4: memories. He would uh, often place Different ants and spiders uh, in different acids, bleaches. He was also into photography, so he had photography uh, development fluids that would also serve to to torture these animals with it, or these insects within. So, yeah, he would often place them in these different concoctions, pop a uh, a drinking glass over the top of them, and, and watch the insects suffer.
3: So, when Bunting was eight years old, he went to a friend's house. And he was actually sexually assaulted by the brothers. And so was his friend. And apparently, this was a slow, horrible experience and was only stopped when the dad came home. Now, this moment, I think, is a very key moment within his childhood and kind of really shaped how he viewed people and, uh, you know, people who would abuse people. Um, obviously, it's going to have a long lasting effect. And I think this is something that really kind of sets his mindset going forward.
4: Yeah, he wasn't able to deal with kind of well what he viewed the shame of that attack on him but also the physical and emotional pain that that caused and then i believe when he was finally freed because he was bound to the bed um he went home and he was late home uh to, to dinner and his mother then further beat him um for, for arriving late so it was just yeah a fairly vicious cycle he didn't feel like he could had anyone to talk to about yeah. what he'd gone through
3: so interestingly there was actually a study done in the university of israel about sexual abuse at a young age and how mu- how much it can affect the brain these studies would actually go on to show that you can, it can have a similar impact to a traumatic brain injury. So you hear a lot of cases you hear about the frontal lobe being damaged and then people kind of changing drastically how they act and how they behave and losing empathy and whatnot. But yeah, um, it's, it's been reported that, you know, this, this kind of abuse can really affect the brain's development and uh, really changed the way they kind of view things.
4: Definitely, and with Bunting, he was most likely repressing this. He didn't have any siblings he could talk to, any friends he could really talk to. His mum and dad he felt ashamed of going to, and and yeah, he was kind of very much isolated in his suffering at the time, which uh, you can imagine the type of um, impact that would have had. So this, yeah, this assault... um, was the yeah the older brother of one of bunting's good school friends and apparently that, that that particular older brother had been frequently abusing his own brother at one point had bunting tied to the bed they would sexually assault him but they would also burn cigarettes into the side of his face um, which is something that Bunting would pick up in, in his later years as well, but inflicting it on other people. So so there's a very um, striking encounter in John's teenage life. Now, I've only managed to find a little bit of information about this, so it's, it's very much alleged. Um, but apparently at 13 years old, John meets a middle-aged man named Benny. And Benny at the time had lived through a, a kind of similar upbringing to John in that he was abused. He actually had both of his big toes uh, cut off with garden shears by his own abusive father. Now, apparently, John went to Benny um, seeking protection from any other uh, kind of assaults or abuse. And in return for protection, Benny asked John to act as bait on the street corners where they would lure essentially paedophile predators to a dark alley or to the downside of the street where then Benny and John would take it in turns in attacking and, and almost beating to death these individuals that they would manage to kind of... Trick down this this uh, side street. Again, it's alleged. There's not a lot of information on it, but that if it did happen, would definitely kind of show you some insight into um, the way that uh, the John's mind was working. Uh, so this Benny individual and John would often break into the homes of known sex offenders in the area, and they would trash and ransack the the houses, often urinating over furniture and writing the the f word in excrement on the walls, uh, which was a their, their
3: own excrement. I, um,
4: I'd imagine so. I'd imagine so.
3: So throughout his teen years, Bunting was very interested in general anatomy, photography and weaponry of all types. This kind of led him to, into research in weapons in history, which would then lead into World War One and World War II and the Nazis, white supremacy. And he became fascinated with that book that a lot of people tend to get fascinated with, Mein Kampf, um, similar to Ian Brady and many other sick individuals. He got very into those extreme ideas, kind of torture, And yeah, he was just fascinated with Nazism in in general. And he actually uh, painted a swastika on his car, but his mum made him remove it.
4: Yeah, I heard that the mum actually just painted over it. Um, So I was trying to imagine that scenario. Maybe she didn't want to cause a scene, quickly paint over it. Um,
3: I heard that um, she made him remove it.
4: As he goes into his later teenage years, Bunting is starting to harbour a strong hatred for paedophiles and homosexuals. And he did not actually tend to kind of distinguish between the two. He very much kind of tarred them with the same brush. Um, he also developed a strong hatred for authority. Um, it's alleged that he had authority defiance disorder, which is uh, a new one for me. Hmm. And at a very young age he was displaying both psychopathic and sociopathic traits. So
3: in 1986 when John was 20 he moved to Adelaide and had a job at a crematorium. Again this is a common theme with a lot of people that we yeah. tend to study. you got Gacy working in a morgue. You've got um, Sutcliffe. suckleaf working as a, as a grave digger fascinated in bodies fascinated in death i guess it makes sense um but yeah, he, he was working there but then at 22 he worked at the sa meat corporation and he'd brag about slaughtering animals to his friends and people around there saying that's what he enjoyed doing the most but the records from the slaughterhouse actually show that wasn't his job on the line he wasn't killing animals there Is but it? he liked to kind of portray that he that's kind of what he did
4: Mm. Yeah, he'd be very graphically describing what he'd been up to at work when he got home. Apparently, he would um, arrive at the dinner table with very bloodied and, and bruised hands. But again, if he was just packing or um delivery driver. I've, uh, any other roles at a slaughterhouse? Supervisor. Maybe in the canteen. <laughs> Maybe. The roles. Um so during this time, he was sharing a house with his friends, Kevin Reed and Kevin's girlfriend. Um, and during this time, it's alleged that uh, Bunting killed Kevin's terrier bulldog.
3: So in September 1989, when Bunting was 23, he would go on to meet Veronica Tripp. He met her in a metalworking class when she was 18 years old. She had a teenage son called Jamie and Troy, and Bunting would go on to marry Veronica.
4: Yeah, and he was, well, I mean, we'll go on to into some more detail when we talk about Jamie, but... He Bunting was essentially the father figure both boys never had. Yeah, they they had a very abusive upbringing, very a very abusive uh, biological fathers and stepfathers, um, and Bunting was kind of everything that both Veronica and her and her sons were, were were kind of dreaming of.
3: Yeah, he seemed like the answer to their prayers there, but not quite how it all would turn out.
4: Metal school as well, metal class, metal working class. Sp- sparks were flying.
3: Yep, yeah, guess they were, Ben. So in 1991, they moved back to Salisbury North, which is a suburb in Adelaide. And this is where they would go on to meet new neighbours Barry Lane and Robert Joe Wagner.
4: So Robert Joe Wagner was born on the 28th of November 1971 in Parramatta, uh, New South Wales. Wagner came from a broken home. His father left the household shortly after he was born. He was very much academically challenged in terms of his performance at school. He he failed most courses and eventually dropped out. While all of this was going on as well, uh, Wagner was sexually abused by both his stepfather and a teenage neighbour. Um, on the street that he lived in, um, which actually at one stage made Wagner suicidal. So he was in a really dark place. And at the age of 14, he met 30-year-old Barry Lane.
3: So Barry Lane was a kind of no- a known child predator around the time, um, but he somehow managed to convince Wagner that... You know they were a couple and were in love with one another. Well, he groomed um, him, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he, he groomed him. The two disappeared together, went into hiding, and resurfaced once Wagner was of, of a more respectable age for them to be in a relationship together. It was a very kind of you know uh, seemed to like be Barry Lane saw an opportunity there with someone who yeah. was already very psychologically vulnerable, and he, and he saw an opportunity there to kind of groom him.
4: Definitely, because physically he was quite a tall guy. Wagner. I mean his his friends, uh, his friends and colleagues at the fire service that he'd eventually go on to work at, nicknamed him lurch tall from uh, I know where it's from the Adams family
3: so just a bit of context it's very this friendship made by Bunton and his two neighbors is a very 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 unlikely friendship to kind of happen obviously Bunton growing up he had a strong hatred towards the gay community as well as kind of predators and he could obviously see the age difference between Wagner and Lane as well so him making friends with them is is very odd some people can kind of theorise perhaps it's just because, you know, it's a neighbour, it's easier. Or some people thought it could actually be because knowing those two people, he would then be able to find out who who else was gay or, who, yeah. or perhaps who else was a predator. And then he could
4: utilise their network. Yeah. It was also alleged that um, the Bunting saw something in Wagner and believed that Wagner actually wasn't gay and that he he wanted to rescue and save Uh, Wagner from Lane but I mean yeah Wagner and Lane had gone through very similar experiences to what Bunting and Benny would do so their house had been burgled and um, vandalized multiple times they would have things sprayed on their fences and, and front doors and walls the pair also Wagner and Lane kept a Doberman and two Alsatians and rumors were ripe in the town that there was at times elements of bestiality going on behind closed doors. But again, that could have been people that were vandalising their their house and did not approve of their relationship, simply kind of spreading, spreading negative news around town, spreading rumours.
3: The other thing about Wagner was he did share a mutual interest with Bunting. He also worshipped Hitler. So him and Bunting would actually go on to join an extremist group called the National Action, which is a kind of far-right uh, movement over in Australia. The group found Wagner and Bunting too extreme and actually would kick him out, which, you know, that's like a guitarist, Joining Slipknot and them saying, "Mate, you're too heavy. Get out of the band." So yeah, it, it's it goes goes to show if if far right group is thinking your thoughts are too extreme, exactly what kind of things were they trying to spout out and oh. uh, and push there.
4: Yeah, as far as um, extremist groups went, they were very radical and and too radical for that particular group, I believe as well. Wagner had gone to local tattoo parlours wanting to get a swastika um, tattooed onto his forehead. And with bunting, there are elements of Charlie Manson that's kind of similar similarities in terms of manipulating maybe less intelligent people or people he feels he can control or or get under his spell. But local tattoo parlours would refuse bunting and uh, Wagner because they didn't want to suffer the consequences of people finding out that they they'd done that but I think that was just a small part of you know their their beliefs and how much they were pushing it once once they joined that group so Barry Lane also had an interest in cross-dressing and uh, he would dress up in women's clothes and kind of lived a a life by one of his alter egos which was simply named Vanessa Um, he had a history in which he'd um, sexually abused two 12 year old boys before and he only served four months for uh, for those assaults, which I think is a yeah. very short sentence. He would often be seen around town and in in full dress, um, but he would only kind of become Vanessa, so to speak. Um, you know, once or twice a month, and uh, and uh, Bunting was still aware of this, but still continued to kind of um, uh, pursue a friendship with the with the couple.
3: Bunting was very very close friends with with both of them, or I think more Wagner. I think he kind of put up with Barry just mm-hmm. f- just to kind of remain friends of Wagner and by this stage you know they're sharing ideologies together they're discussing you know the mutual hatreds for the people they have and also you know Bunting's kind of learning about who, who locally like you know his, his network's expanded in terms of people that he, he knows locally who perhaps are gay or who he thinks are child predators and he's at a stage now where he, you know, his brain's kind of working over time in terms of like what he kind of wants to do and his anger and kind of it's building up.
4: Bunting has arrived into Salisbury North an absolute hero as well because family absolutely idolise him. He's made friends in the neighbourhood very, very quickly. He's viewed as this really kind of charismatic leader, uh, as we mentioned. And um, everything in his life is, is, is on the up. But uh, things are going to take a, a, a quite a drastic turn um, as we're going to go into our timeline now. The timeline. Timeline. Hit that timeline music. Boom, 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 boom. 16th of August 1992, the first victim was 18-year-old Clinton Trezeis, who was openly gay and at the time in a relationship with Barry Vanessa Lane. After Wagner and Lane had broken up, the two uh, formed a bit of a bond. One day, Bunting invited Clinton round to his home for drinks. As the pair were sat down, Bunting attacked Clinton from behind with a shovel hitting him in the back of the head and he fell to the floor immediately. So Bunting, uh, in carrying out this attack, was accusing Trezise of being a paedophile, though there was no evidence to kind of back this up. Lane and Wagner helped Bunting dispose of the body in a shallow grave alongside Middle Beach Road at Lower Light, South Australia. Bunting wouldn't kill again for the next three years. So
3: obviously that's his first Bunting's first kind of, you know, his first person he's killed, and as well it's it's someone that he has no evidence of being um, a paedophile he's just kind of thought, oh he's gay therefore he must be, and he's got yeah, he's got Lane and Wagner involved straight away which, even though they obviously were hanging out and whatnot, they're now implicated within the crime yeah. So they're kind of in on this like dark secret they all have one with one another. Bunting would actually call um Clinton Happy Pants was the kind of nickname he had for him, which sounds quite an affectionate name, but um you know, you can imagine with his kind of the way he thought about uh, gay people it was, it was done in kind of a kind of spiteful way gritted but, teeth yeah because Clinton was known for wearing bright red and bright purple trousers it's it's just a sign there where obviously Clinton trusted um, Bunting enough to go to his house for drinks and then him attacking him from behind there's also signs of like um, of, of Clinton trying to defend himself because he had like a fractured hand um, but this this incident um, shook Lane up afterwards so, as we said Wagner and Lane were kind of called in on it but there's evidence to suggest that Lane was very shook up from this as Clinton was supposedly one of his friends obviously that's the, that's the big thing in this obviously he was having a relationship with him at the time so he confided in Bunton's wife telling her what happened but asking her not to mention it to Bunton as he feared what he may do to
4: them. Yeah, that's the fit. And so, um, yeah, I think it was his left hand that was completely fractured as well as the back of his skull completely caved in. Though the attack was completely kind of uh, unprovoked and seemingly escalated out of nowhere, the kind of more devious part of this is that Clinton was somewhat of a drifter. So he would kind of move from town to town. He'd go away on trips and he also, um, you know, um, potentially due to, to being a homosexual, was kind of uh, abandoned by his family. Yeah, he wasn't very close to his family.
3: Um, yeah, and as you said, he, he him kind of disappearing and moving around, it wouldn't be crazily out of character for him to not be in town the next day and he, you know, he wouldn't have much contact with his with his parents. So it wasn't a case of like people wouldn't notice if he was missing for a certain period of time.
4: Yeah, they'd just assume he's gone on another trip and and that would be that. But we'll, we'll come back to Clinton at, at the end of the episode because yeah, there's some interesting uh, little bits about that particular uh, incident. So in
3: 1993, Elizabeth Harvey, a 40-year-old single mum, moves herself and two sons to Salisbury North. Elizabeth had also experienced abuse as a child when a seemingly charming neighbour, Jeffrey Payne, offered to look after her two young sons. Elizabeth couldn't believe her luck. Little did Elizabeth know that Jeffrey Payne was a convicted paedophile. From November 1993 to January 1994, Payne would sexually abuse Elizabeth's sons, Jamie and Troy. Eventually, Elizabeth was warned by concerned neighbours about Payne, and she put a stop to the abuse which saw her get arrested. So this this um, abuse deeply affected Jamie like they mentioned earlier on. Their kind of childhood wasn't very happy anyway with um, parents kind of abusing them and then the new neighbour
4: and the new town when they moved to. Yeah, it was alleged Troy also abused Jamie as well and yeah, Bunting arrives at, at the perfect time almost for him but he was massively affected by, by this abuse and he would actually shower obsessively scrubbing his skin so hard that he would in fact draw blood.
3: Yeah so yeah yeah, Jamie's had a horrible time of it and yeah so this is where this is the moment where Bunting would actually go on to meet Elizabeth and her sons so 1994 Bunting got wind of what happened to Elizabeth and her sons with his ever-growing hatred for paedophiles, he took it upon himself to become a protector of Elizabeth and her boys, and after spending time with the family, it wasn't long until he became romantically involved with Elizabeth.
4: So yeah, it's a very poignant scene in, in the Snowtown movie itself, but also this is alleged to have, have been like for like. Bunting is on the front porch of Jeffrey Payne, and he's on a motorbike, and he's this is in the middle of the night immediately revving, um, revving his bike up, dust going everywhere, a lot of noise, and he pulls out and displays the fact that he has a weapon on him. So Payne immediately isolates within his home and is, he's not seen for days. So at the time, uh, Bunting had a relationship with his wife, Veronica, and that was very much on the rocks. So he was hardly ever at home with her and spent most of his time now with Elizabeth. Jamie enjoyed having a strong male role model in the house, which is something he hadn't had all of his life, predominantly one that would not betray his trust. As his older brother Troy had allegedly also sexually abused him, Bunting took Jamie under his wing and would make him watch as he killed and skinned stray cats and dogs, potentially to, you know, kind of harden him up, I guess.
3: Yeah, I think... um, you could well, you could think maybe but that's about something Bunting enjoyed and he was kind of trying to share one of his enjoyments it was a very dark thing to share but um, yeah he kind of saw Jamie maybe saw a bit of himself in Jamie in terms of a, a young boy who's had a, had a really rough time with it and he wanted to protect him and make sure he was okay and Jamie yeah as you said like his brother's his stepbrother's betrayed his trust. His dad's betrayed his trust. It's just like he's not had a male role model who's looked out for him and kind of, you know, done, done right by him. So he's kind of seeing, oh, this guy, oh, maybe he is a bit strange with this stuff, but he's everything else is all...
4: Yeah, yeah. And timing-wise for Bunting, it couldn't have been any better. He's very impressionable at this point. He's very vulnerable. And I think Bunting, again, has seen a chance to potentially, you know, manipulate another person.
3: Yeah. So again, in 1994, Trisees' body is found but remains unidentified for another five years. The police do not yet link this murder to Bunting. The $100,000 award wasn't claimed so there's a big kind of price put on that um, but yeah it, the there wasn't enough evidence there for them to kind of recognise the body. Bunting would boast to Jamie about his dark deed when the body was shown on an episode of Australia's Most Wanted. So this is like kind of the first time revealing to Jamie you know, his twisted world, what he's done before, and he's very proud of it. And obviously, we said with having um, Bunting having Jamie under under his kind of wing, Bunting would go on to show Jamie his wall of spiders, which is something he nicknamed this notice board he had in his bedroom, which basically had names, notes, and blue string kind of linking between them, kind of a bit like a web.
4: Which Charlie was and it's always sunny. Yeah, bird law. Think was bird There's a lot
3: of things in it. there in the string. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Thinking all these local um, homosexual men who, who he also believed to be paedophiles, you know, he didn't seem to have much... Anyone who was gay seemed to think, oh, he's also a paedophile. And he had called them dirties. He had often ring these men at night and they shout abuse down the phone and also go on to vandalise their property. The reason for it being called the Wall of Spiders is rock spider is an Australian slang term for paedophile, usually used in prisons.
4: And I think that uh, that part where you talked about them watching an episode of uh, Australia's Most Wanted and, Bun- and they're literally, this is how impressionable Jamie is at the time, they're literally sat there and uh, I imagine kind of captivated by the story and Bunting kind of leans back and goes, oh, you see that? That was me. But Jamie's really buying it and impressed by it. Whereas anyone else would probably take it with a pinch of salt. I imagine.
3: A lot of uh, speculation there, but...
1: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass...
4: So December 1995, Ray Davies, a man with severe learning disabilities who was known for exposing himself to children, uh, was also an, an acquaintance of Lane's, was beaten to death by Wagner and Bunting after one of Bunting's neighbours, Suzanne Allen, discovered that he had been sexually abusing two of her young nephews, or, or she had alleged that this was the case in any in any form. Davies was in a relationship with Suzanne Allen, and once they had broke up, moved into a caravan van in her backyard at the time of his murder davies was renting a property 79 miles away bunting and wagner drove to that particular house beat him primarily in the genital area and then drove back to bunting's house where elizabeth harvey joined them in torturing him and subsequently killing him so
3: yeah that's obviously they've now made the group of three into a group of four there a uh, brilliant elizabeth harvey in which obviously she's been around Bunter for a long time now and she's kind of
4: seen what he's like but it's kind of you know it's another escalation yeah so Davies was then buried in Bunting's back garden and he was never officially reported as missing while the group were torturing Davies and he was very close to death Bunting allegedly asked Elizabeth do you like your present so back to the 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 lady that had initially raised uh, the concerns around Ray Davies Bunting went back to Suzanne Allen and told her that they had scared Davies away and that she didn't need to worry about him anymore Bunting and his gang would use Davy's debit card to withdraw his fortnightly welfare payments. So again, when family were checking in or raising any concerns to the police, they would check uh, his kind of digital footprint or his, his banking accounts, and they would kind of um, verify that they were still being withdrawn, so that therefore he must still be alive. So that's
3: kind of a pattern later on they would take as well, they, whilst doing these kind of... Torture, they would take, obtain information from the people, and you know, enough for them to be able to take the welfare checks and any kind of thing they could, like financial gain they could get from these deaths as well, which kind of also makes you think it wasn't always just about them thinking. You know they were trying to make money from this.
4: Yeah, that, that's the really interesting thing about this case. As the, as they go on to claim more victims, the motive kind of changes, but also the kind of type of victims that they were they were attacking or targeting would also um, change.
3: Yeah. So in 1996, Bunting, Elizabeth, and her children moved back to Bacara. Um Suzanne Allen, who was in love with Bunting, visited the house one weekend where she and Bunting slept together. Bunting then told her there was nothing between them, and she returned home but continued to write emotional letters to him. Bunsen stayed in Bacara with Elizabeth for a few months before moving the family to Murray Bridge. So yeah, I mean, maybe, perhaps it's because, you know, he, he saved Suzanne Allen or he was, you know, the hero there. A lot of, lot of women did seem to gravitate towards Bunsen, you know, kind of underlining how charming people found him. I mean, he's not, exa- he's not exactly Johnny Depp, um, but he seems to be getting a lot lot of women uh, very interested in him.
4: Yeah, and again, he's going, he's going for the vulnerable types, So often single mothers or people that are going through kind of abusive relationships. So he is very much trying to look like the, the, the hero, the, the man that saves the day. Uh, and that's something that he would continue to try and do. So despite leaving her le- love letters unanswered, Bunting drove down to visit Alan with Wagner, only to find her in her bathroom dead from a heart attack. Although this is obviously you know, Bunting's side of the story. The pair would then dispose of her body using Bunting's named slice and dice method, burying her in 11 plastic bags 1.5 metres above Davy's remains in the garden of the house at Salisbury North. Some people believe that Bunting killed her to stop her from telling Elizabeth Harvey about the affair. However, as the group would continue to collect her pension by concealing her death, it is likely that this was just a lucky break for Bunting and gave him the idea of making a financial profit from his murders for subsequent victims. Once the body had been found, however, the coroner couldn't rule out that she had died from natural causes.
3: Yeah, so it's... it's, Who do you believe there? Because, yeah, I said the the evidence there isn't as clear-cut. But, I mean, he's already got a very clear killer instinct. But like I said later on, his MO and his people who he tends to go for changes drastically, but by this stage, she is not one of his... Targets. I guess you could look at it two different ways. Whether or not she did die of a heart attack, and he found her, disposing of the body, yeah, hiding the body so then no one knows she's dead, so he can still collect the checks. Perhaps it makes sense, but it, it yeah, it seems to be a bit of an odd one.
4: And as well to then go go ahead and cut her up into eleven bags mm. when she's had a heart attack. Why not just if it was if, if he was worried about finding the body. Mm why not just leave and make a, an anonymous call
3: September 1997 an acquaintance of Wagner's cousin Michael Gardner who was an openly gay cross-dresser basically Wagner flew into a rage after finding Gardner alone playing games with his cousin's children but he saw Gardner with his hand over the mouth of, the, of one of the kids which kind of sparked a memory of Wagner when he was abused by having the hand over his mouth so it, people think it's probably just really poor timing and the fact that he kind of saw it it was just, it was just sheer bad luck um, it's, it's obviously it's Wagner's account against everyone else's but people have said Gardner he, that wasn't his, his kind of way uh, but this immediately made Wagner want to kind of sort him out you know seek, it, yeah. seek revenge there and protect his, his cousin's child so sometime later Wagner and Bunting kidnapped Gardner and strangled and tortured him with a noose so forcing him to stand in order to stay alive which would eventually go on to kill him they forced him to call a friend and say he was going to move north just to kind of cover their tracks there and they dumped Gardner in a barrel of acid in the bank in Snowtown he was only 19. So yeah, that the image of having something around your neck. So basically, if you you get so tired and worn out, but if you can't stand anymore, then it's it's a horrible. Horrible thing to picture there.
4: So two things that Tom has just mentioned there, uh Snowtown and the bank vault. So firstly, Snowtown. Snowtown is a little town uh, approximately eighty seven miles north of Adelaide. Very, very small town, kind of in the middle of nowhere. And this is where um town S- uh, huh? Good
3: stuff. Thank you, mate.
4: So there will be another member of Bunting's gang that we'll go on to talk about, which is Mark Ray Hayden. Um, and Mark Ray Hayden had actually been renting an abandoned state bank building in Snowtown, which is uh, a bank building with four attached bedrooms. And it also had access to a secure vault. So Bunting saw this as an opportunity to, to store essentially the bodies in the barrels. Yeah. And and that's what the group would go on to do. It's in the middle of nowhere, it's in kind of a small town where people don't really ask questions. And um, and, and for a period of time that really well it really worked for the group. Completely, completely undetected.
3: A vault for storing body, it seems. Storing something you want to hide from people seems the absolute ideal, doesn't it, really? So as I said before, it's quite strange that Barry Lane is part of this group. Um, he's completely not someone who Bunting, you can imagine Bunting wanting to hang around. Uh, but he apparently was only in the circle to help Bunton keep up to date with the goings-on within the paedophile community. After Lane was accused of molesting a local boy, someone firebombed Lane and Wagner's house and Bunton told him never to come around again. So Wagner left Lane at this point and began a relationship with a woman uh, who had several children who he eventually got engaged to. Um, Lane at this time also began dating Thomas Trevelyan and moved in with him in April 1997.
4: Yeah, just a mixture of different characters with different different uh, backgrounds, different lifestyles in the Snowtown movie like at uh, times and that the actor that plays Bunting is incredible. Yeah, he's very very um yeah. but at times you can just feel the friction between Lane and Bunting and you're always kind of seeing there's really cool shots of where Bunting's kind of a conversation is happening but he's just looking at Lane. Mm. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's all kind of boiling up at this point. A
3: lot of the time as well with that group it's kind of led by fear of Bunting and you're not wanting to cross him. You don't know you don't want to you know him to turn on you and he can fly off the handle he can fly off the handle 100 percent. Yeah. so wagner as well there so wagner's now left lane and he's now now you know with a woman and i think that'd be bunting would be very approving of that change in his friend thinking all along that he probably was straight so there's a big change in Wagner's life there as well.
4: So on the 17th of October 1997 uh, around the same time Trevelyan also reported to Bunting that Lane was sexually abusing him. Bunting, Wagner and Trevelyan picked up Lane and forced him to call his mother and tell her that he was moving to Queensland. His mother has later said that she could hear Trevelyan in the background telling Lane what to say. It was also alleged that Lane you could tell something was going on with the tone of his Mm. voice very croaky as he was trying to talk Uh, the group then tortured him for details of his bank accounts after crushing his toes with pliers amongst other torture methods Lane was strangled to death the group later disposed of his body using their preferred barrel and acid method some people uh, after this would all come out and at the time viewed this as Wagner actually uh, being the driving force behind this one and wanting to carry out revenge on his former abuser and former groomer um, the person who had stole, in Wagner's opinion, multiple years of life.
3: Yeah, I mean, you it, it can see that. As in someone that you kind of realise, and especially probably bunting in his ear, how did you live with this man for so long after what he did to you? Um, as well, a little throwback there, with the pliers method to Benny, the, the torturing has gone up a notch. So November 1997, shortly after the murder of Lane, Trevelyan moved in with Wagner. His girlfriend did not like him as trevelyan was a paranoid schizophrenic who suffered from delusions and often dressed up in army fatigues trevelyan uh, allegedly attempted to kill wagner's stepson's puppy uh, but they were able to stop him uh, that afternoon Bunting and, and, and wagner told jamie that trevelyan had started to fuck up and go mental and that he wouldn't risk their operation so he didn't want him to kind of let on to what they've been doing he was acting very irrationally, kind of you know being very uh, unpredictable, so they didn't want to risk, you know, losing their kind of perfect system they got here. Now that you know, they killed yeah. uh, three people
4: now, and you know, referring got... to it as an operation as well. Like yeah, I still, view, it's kind of going back to that uh, Yorkshire Ripper, Peter Sutcliffe kind of thing. He viewed it as his divine mission yeah. it was ridding the streets of uh, sex workers, whereas John Bunting is viewing it that he's cleaning cleaning the streets of predators and, uh, and, and 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 pedophiles and homosexuals. Definitely,
3: yeah, hundred um, percent and um... it's a bit of a God complex thinking that you know they're, they're the vigilantes doing what they, what they need to protect in the neighbourhood yeah so then they took him for a drive a day later Trevelyan was found hanging from a tree given his past suicide attempts the coroner ruled his death a suicide no further investigation was launched so they, were, they would have been aware of this the fact that he has tried to kill himself before so then you know they haven't gone from the barrel method because they felt like they didn't yeah. need to because they could just stage this and people wouldn't ask any questions.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's that's not the mo, is it, to leave a body out in public? I believe it was a trucker that found uh, found Travillian hanging from the tree, uh, but again, as you said, no real questions were asked. Again, it's the specific kind of victim type, I guess, someone that's not going to be missed or someone with a sense of vulnerability or with with you know potentially a suicidal thoughts or a uh, suicidal history so there you have it april 1998 31 year old gavin porter a diagnosed schizophrenic who had spent many years in mental institutions met 17 year old jamie and moved in with him the pair kind of struck up a bond because both of them were heroin addicts and uh, it's important to note as well bunting could not stand drugs or drug addicts though he would tolerate it uh, with jamie
3: yeah so jamie obviously hadn't such a heart like he kind of try to cope with um you know the trauma in his life with, with drinking and um, self-medicating with with drugs and obviously he's got to the stage of heroin here the one thing i find with this as well this whole story is how open door policy people's houses are the amount of times people <laughs> move in with people yeah i mean in in the house with with buntin and jamie the amount of times people just kind of move in there and live there for a while and then kind of drift out is very bizarre
4: so during this time obviously gavin porter moves in with jamie elizabeth and bunting and bunting decides that he should be the group's next victim after he was pricked by a discarded syringe porter had left in the living room bunting someone who's quite quick to anger <laughs> as it goes it's kind of the
3: equivalent of stepping on lego but uh...
4: in a way but in a
3: lot <laughs> darker way
4: yeah and this this particular one was one of the ones that uh, I mentioned. The Crime Investigation Australia reenactment was particularly brutal. The guy playing Bunting, which was quite distracting, looked a little bit like Jack Black. Not a big fan of Jack Black. <clears throat> and I think they were particularly trying to emphasise the fact that uh, Bunting was a man's man. And I did notice that in the corner of one of the rooms Bunting was in, he had a boob mug. A boob mug? Yeah, so... It was the same one you have, or...? On the evening of his death, Porter was working in his car under the influence of drugs. He fell asleep on the back seat and was awoken by Bunting and Wagner attacking him with a rope around his neck. And as he kind of awoke to a panic, he grabbed a nearby screwdriver and stabbed Bunting in the hand. This, however, um, only served to fuel Bunting's uh, kind of aggression further, and uh, they overpowered Porter and strangled him to death. They then showed Porter's dead body to Jamie before disposing of it into a barrel.
3: So, obviously, Jamie's friends with um, Porter, so this is a very kind of disturbing time for Jamie, and obviously, it looks as Bunting as a kind of a father figure Um, he'd be very intimidated with Bunting as well knowing if you get the wrong side of him what exactly could happen so this is a very kind of mentally difficult situation to go through very traumatic in itself yeah as well just to highlight Bunting and Wagner in terms of Bunting was quite a small guy Um, as Ben mentioned earlier on with Wagner he's very tall and muscular known as Lurch it's their kind of like a you know, he's the brains and he's the muscle essentially with Wagner there it'd be very hard to overpower Uh, especially with them together.
4: Bunting also just so much anger in him, so much aggression in him that he would just lash out. And a lot of these, well, almost all of them, completely unprovoked, completely out of nowhere. You know, even sometimes as they were attacking their their victims, they would often fight each other as well, not to kill their victims too quickly. So they'd start lashing out at each other. It was just a frenzied, frenzied series of attacks.
3: And as we said before, with Bunting not having the sense of smell, who would often take a lot of joy by looking into the barrels and like, obviously not smelling the bodies, but seeing how far along they were in the rotting process. He got a lot of pleasure out of that, which which I think Wagner, you didn't really partake in that because of the smell. Apparently it was so putrid. Yeah, it's, it's a horrible, uh, horrible thought.
4: On the odours that were emanating from the barrels, they're very much the barrels look like the kind of Breaking Bad style barrels where you're going to store money and bury it or store Oil drums. or dissolve a body. Yeah, the group, whether this is intentional or not, and Bunting actually wanted to preserve the victims' bodies, they used hydrochloric acid if they actually wanted to dissolve the bodies they should have used, or could have used, sulfuric acid.
3: So the top tip there from Ben. Um, August 1998, Jamie confided in Bunting that he had been sexually abused by his half-brother, Troy, um, when he was 14. So Troy himself had been abused as well, uh, growing up. So this obviously... Made Bunting angry, as we know how he, how his feeling is towards anyone sexually assaulting or or um, any gay activity as well. Um, so he decided the best thing, the best course of action was to get Troy. So Bunting and Wagner and Hayden woke Jamie up one night and told him they were going to get Troy. They then tied Troy up, tortured him and put him in a bath where they beat him again and forced him to give them financial details. They also forced him to record phrases so they could send his friends messages to keep up the pretense that he was alive. This bit's really twisted and kind of shows just the kind of God complex that Bunting had. They made him call them by the names Sir, God, Master and Chief Inspector. And then what they do is they crush his toes with pliers if, if he ever used the incorrect names which is, they they finally strangled him to death. They took Troy's body to a barrel. In fact, he was too uh, large for the barrel. But this didn't at all phase Bunting as he he proceeded to cut Troy's feet off to ensure he would fit. So just to kind of take a step back on this slightly, this is Jamie's half-brother. Obviously, Troy abused Jamie when he was growing up, but he is his half-brother. So that's a very kind of, in itself, a very hard, relationship anyway yeah
4: and it uh, could be argued with Troy as well that that was like learned behaviour from their yeah, stepfathers. fathers yeah and he was you know simply doing it because that was what you what you do
3: yeah yeah exactly we didn't know the exact kind of the exact kind of
4: not defending Troy at all but yeah then.
3: totally yeah yeah so Jamie obviously he must fear Bunting as well as as much as he kind of admires him so he wouldn't have felt it was within his power to stop this happening and again obviously Troy is uh, Elizabeth Harvey's son this is in her house suddenly her son goes missing but this doesn't seem to make a big song and dance about it and obviously she was involved with one of the early murders so she knows exactly what Bunton's capable of so it's it's well she's just scared I feel like she must have you know smelled a rat.
4: Yeah, in the back of her mind, yeah. She must have thought, at, at least had the idea that Bunting was responsible. But obviously they'd made him record those different uh, voice messages. Yeah. Fairly aggressive from from what we, we understand. So who knows? There's loads of conjecture with this case, loads of different people involved, and it's just so sad that obviously that whole... F- well they're now escalating to the point of killing relatives as well. Now, yeah. you know, anyone's a possible target. So September 1998, Bunting became involved with a woman called Gail Sinclair. Gail had a son who was 17-year-old Fred Brooks. And this is an interesting part because Fred didn't warm to Bunting whatsoever. He didn't like him from the off, sense that something wasn't quite right about Bunting, and this really rubbed Bunting the wrong way. Fred wasn't Bunting's usual kind of... Um, mo in terms of the type of victim he'd look for or the type of individual he'd want to attack or torment um he was not an abuser of children he was not a sex offender he was not a drug user to kind of bypass this bunting began to spread rumors that fred brooks was being inappropriate with young girls telling people in in the gang that something had to happen to fred brooks And on the day that Brooks found out he had been accepted uh, into the Air Force cadets, he decided to pass on an invite to a party uh, celebrating that achievement in favour of joining Bunting, Wagner and Jamie in a break and enter.
3: So yeah, break and enter, uh, uh, robbing people's houses essentially. I find this bit all a bit bizarre because, as we said, Fred's quite straight-laced. He's going to the Air Force cadets. And then he's, rather than going to a party to celebrate it, he's going to meet someone he doesn't like yeah. to go robbing. It just doesn't feel...
4: Yeah, and he's got a fairly good moral compass, his good perception about other people, mm. and maybe a good judge of character, but he's that's kind of let him down in this instance.
3: Yeah, he didn't smell a rat, he but didn't. the rat couldn't smell.
4: So this is, again, there's there's lots of twists and turns and kind of layers to this case, but this one has elements of John Wayne Gacy to it because there is a handcuff trick. Or a thumb, thumb cuff. cuff. Trick. Oh, I was going to thumb war you. It's like being in thumb cuffs with me because I'm yeah, good. A what? There's no warts. There's no warts, guys. Just could zoom in. Ben, edit some warts on there. Don't edit some warts on <laughs> there. So once at Bunting's house, Brooks was challenged to try on a pair of thumb cuffs. Basically, the group had been passing them around, breaking out of them, and they wanted to make sure that had they been put in a position to to wear thumb cuffs, that all of them were okay to escape if they, you know, potentially were caught by the police. Brooks puts himself in the cuffs and he can't get out. And it's at this point that he is immediately attacked by the group and savagely attacked, in fact. They bind him and they start to torture him through particularly brutal methods including cigarettes being stubbed out on his nose and on his ears and having smiley faces burnt into his forehead with a lighter
3: so with that uh, a bit of a throwback I remember smileys being a thing which the cool kids yeah. at school would seem to think it was a cool thing to do where you just basically yeah, you burn your lighter for a while so it's hot in the metal and then you put it against your skin and it would basically burn you and it gives, leaves a little mark resembling a smiley face obviously don't do that never do that, it's stupid use a match
4: don't. It's just just light relief. And this is particularly dark. So as well as having already burnt uh, Brooks, Bunting decides to insert a sparkler into his urethra and then light it. As well as this, his toes were also crushed, and he was left to choke to death on his gag. And this is. Uh, someone that you know wasn't typically bunting's mo he hadn't offended he hadn't um, abused anybody he simply didn't really warm to bunting as far as we know
3: yeah and- so he's got yeah he's got the most severe well you could argue the most severe torture on him comparatively to other people who in bunting's head would have far more deserved it but it seems to be bunting is escalating now with how severe these are getting. He's still trying to outdo himself with the kind of techniques he's doing. It's very, it's, it's horrible.
4: So as well as inserting the sparkler into Brooks's urethra and lighting it, as well as crushing his toes, the gang also attached electronic devices to Brooks's testicles and penis and gave electric shocks there. They also injected his testicles with water, Yeah, which is just cruel and Oh well, Yeah, I mean,
3: <sighs> all of that is very very bizarre and like you're horrible horrible the pain that would that would have caused
4: yeah. he's not committed any harm to anyone he simply didn't warm to bunting and bunting has obviously carried out or led the group to conduct the most brutal of, of, of murders yes Brooks was eventually left to choke to death on his own gag and I think in the in, in the, the reenactment as well which again all of them are absolutely brutal but they're they're fighting with each other because they're like careful if you keep doing that you'll kill him he wanted to preserve it and prolong the suffering which is just absolutely grim so uh, as a result of this Gail uh, reports her son missing but was then told by Bunting that he had seen Fred in town under the influence he then played a recording that they actually had forced Fred to conduct to his mother which actually was an angry goodbye message how Bunting just happens to have that on his person is kind of strange
3: yeah and uh it's kind of strange that they went for the idea of recording messages rather than doing handwritten notes or things like that yeah and then yeah the Gale would go on to call the police and basically call off the search there so again uh, Wagner and Bunting getting away with murder there and you know, they, they think they're untouchable.
4: And as often is the, is the case, they go through a few years of getting away with murder. Uh, they do start to feel more powerful than ever, untouchable. And this is just escalating more and more in their behaviours. It's almost to the point where now Bunting is, it, well, he's already quite an arrogant individual, but he's now extremely arrogant in what he, he attempts to do next.
3: So during this time, the police were investigating Barry Lane's disappearance. They discovered that, that withdrawals were being made on, on Lane's account at the ATM at the same service station every pension day. They installed surveillance cameras and got footage of Wagner making the withdrawals. So through his links with Bunting, both were now put under
4: surveillance and had their telephones tapped. Smart. Three years ago, the very first victim, Clinton Trezise. Because withdrawals were still being made on Clinton's um, welfare uh, payments, they assumed that he was still alive, but they never investigated further. Three years. It took his own mother to realise. I've not heard from Clinton in a while. But had they have realized that sooner maybe all of this could have been tied back to bunting immediately
3: yeah i mean you would have thought if if the a lot of times they, they assume that he's left town so why are the withdrawal has being made in the town that he's left seems to be a fairly suspect thing but i guess yeah there's a lot of times in this where you think people police could perhaps stepped in but it was kind of you know small towns uh,
4: small communities Uh, people did kind of come and go so November 1998 and this is the one that I found particularly upsetting uh, Gary O'Dwyer an intellectually and physically disabled man picked simply because he resembled Troy and possibly looked gay yeah um, was tortured in his own home by Bunting, Wagner, and Jamie. The really sad one about uh, this p- is that Bunting, Wagner, and, and Jamie basically befriended him. They saw him because uh, he walked with a limp. They saw him walking down the street. They offered him, um, you know, a, a, an invite to come around and have some drinks. And and he, Gary, simply thought, "Oh, you know, I've made made some new friends exactly. here because he didn't
3: have many friends. So he, he was very keen to make friends. And so, oh, these people seem nice. Um, you know, very trusting. They essentially saw someone who." Very, very vulnerable and decided to pounce.
4: Exactly, exactly and um, and from Bunting again if he's leading this potential attack then he's seeing some resemblance of Troy, the, the fact that he possibly looked gay, how he's come to that conclusion. So yeah, so they convince him into the car, they drive back to Mark Hayden's home where they strangle him to death and put his body into a barrel. Gary O'Dwyer had simply befriended Jamie and hosted drinks for the trio before they decided to turn on him. And again, he's just sat in a chair. They're all having a good time and and then Bunting strikes uh, from from behind him.
3: So around this time, Hayden told Bunting that he had told his wife, Elizabeth Hayden, about the murders, which is a very bizarre thing to do. Admit to Bunting that you've done that. So apparently Bunting hated Elizabeth and planned to kill her whilst Mark was kept busy in the city by another one of his acquaintances. Bunting and Jamie strangled Elizabeth in a bath. So when Mark Hayden returned over two hours later, Bunting had told him that he had spurned Elizabeth's sexual advances, so she had stormed out of the house. Again, Caden knowing exactly what they'd been up to before, I'm sure it wouldn't have taken long to put two and two together there.
4: It was also weird because Bunting was such an elaborate liar that he said, not only did I I spurn her advances and she left, but he goes, she ran upstairs, went into her room, and then left via the window for me rejecting her.
3: Mm. It's always the thing, if you lie, too too many details is always a clear a thing of a lie mm. uh, eventually Hayden's wife was reported missing by her brother police found it strange that she had not been reported missing by her husband that is very strange mm-hmm. they soon linked her disappearance to Bunting and Wagner obviously we said before that the police are currently kind of keeping an eye on them anyway and raided Hayden's house including the shed where the barrels had previously been kept so yeah it's th- the police are starting
4: to hone in on them now several months later Bunting's friends told him that they were moving to Snowtown and he asked them to take the barrels with them they agreed but told him that the barrels were starting to smell and to come and get them. Bunting and Hayden. Tra- I mean, imagine what's going through there. Imagine that as well. All the evidence in those barrels is just given, dr- driven away with his friends. They don't mm. know what's going on. I mean, they assume that they've not questioned the smell. Well, that's what they're saying they're going to Go get him. They smell too much, aren't they? Essentially. It's, uh, yeah, it's,
3: it's obviously he had the kangaroo. He said before, there's kangaroos in there. Kangaroo bodies. Um, yeah, very
4: bizarre. So there you go. So immediately Bunting and Hayden travel to Snowtown, where they then sign a lease for the house and adjoining unused bank, which would obviously later go on to become infamous, and they moved the barrels into the vault belonging to the bank. Ironically, the bank building was next door to the local police station. That is bold. Skating on thin ice. They are
3: indeed. Hmm. <laughs> if the police were to go in the vault, then they'd have them over a barrel there, wouldn't they, really? Brilliant. Thank you. May 1999. This is this the final victim, David Johnson, who was Jamie's new stepbrother. Elizabeth had begun a relationship with with his father, Marcus. Bunton didn't like him because in Bunting's mind, he was a yuppie. Bunting would often refer to him using um, homophobic slurs and said that he needed to die. Uh, he was lured to the Snowtown Bank on the pretense of buying a computer because, yeah, weirdly, Bunting was trying to explain to people that he used that, used that space for swapping and selling computers, which is very, again, bizarre. Johnson was tortured by Bunton for his bank information. Jamie and Wagner took his card to an ATM and, and, and attempted to withdraw money, but were unsuccessful. By the time they had returned, Bunton had already killed Johnson. Bunting claimed that Johnson had overpowered him and he had no choice. This uh, annoyed Wagner because he felt cheated out of, out of the torture. So Wagner cut a piece of the flesh from Johnson's body and the trio later returned to Adelaide, where Wagner and Bunton cooked and ate the flesh. Johnson was the only victim to have actually been killed in Snowtown. So again, another escalation there to actually um, eating the victim.
4: Yeah, and another kind of target to add to Bunting's list, yuppie. Mm. So uh, homosexuals, paedophiles, drug users, uh, people that look like Troy, Troy... And yuppies.
3: And people that just don't like him a bit.
4: And and people that don't warm to him Mm. quick enough. So 20th
3: of May, 1999, the police launched an investigation into the disappearances of five of the victims. So the Elizabeth Hayden disappearance is the kind of thing that kind of prompted this, which led them to the disused bank where they discovered five barrels of the body parts of eight people in acid in a vault, which the stench apparently was unbelievable, as you can imagine. Like uh, earlier on, um, producer Dan discovered a rotten cake he left in uh, his bag. Yeah. And Tupperware. And that smell.
4: Yeah, I smelt it before I saw it.
3: Yeah. Mm. So imagine a barrel isn't that true, Dan. No. <laughs> what are you talking about? And that was that, that was, you know, stomach churning. Over, overwhelming.
4: Yeah. The scene itself as well. So they'd they'd take they'd used bin bags to tape off certain windows and doors mm. so they'd enclosed all of that Yeah. M- musk. Moisture. So if I'm an officer and I'm arriving at that scene, for me You're out your depth. I'm out of my depth already um, I'm secure in the premises I'm not
3: you shouldn't be anywhere near it you should be just outside maybe saying to the local people oh the real policemen are in there doing the job <laughs> I'm just just please, guys can you stay back but thank you
4: one particular officer was like despite obviously in your head you're aware loads of people have gone missing you're aware of the type of peak because they were tracking these people for quite some time now you found some barrels in a vault that you know stink stink one of the officers went straight up and immediately lifted one. Of the yes, you have to. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because it
3: could could have just been kangaroos. Exactly,
4: shot with illegal weapons. Mm. Um, you know, you
3: don't want to jump to conclusions.
4: So the next day, the 21st of May, 1999, Bunting, Wagner, Jamie and Mark Hayden were arrested and charged with the murders of the bodies in the barrels. Police investigations led them to a total of 12 potential victims across a seven-year timeline, although they would only be convicted of the murder of 11 of them.
3: So, yeah, I mean, a couple of these, as you said, the staged suicide and also the possible heart attack, which we're not sure if that happened. It's, yeah, so, yeah, that's the timeline. Then we're going to go into the aftermath now.
4: So as they're arrested, um, the case itself generates national, well, global attention, but large amount in of- <laughs> the universe, like. Didn't you hear about the murders in Snowtown? Is
3: that a village? <laughs> no, you idiot. It's a town in the name. <laughs> it's what the aliens would say.
4: So John Bunting, Robert Wagner, Mark Hayden and Jamie Vlasakis were all taken into custody and as news uh, starts to kind of filter through to mainstream media, it becomes a a national sensation, you know, one of the biggest and longest crime sprees in in, in Australian history and the trial also, um, you know, kind of backs that up in terms of the the size of it, the length of it. the, The trial itself lasted almost 12 months which is the longest in the history of South Australia and one particularly interesting part is that when the when the group were brought to sentencing they all remained completely silent no, none of them would enter a plea at all they wouldn't say a word so they on 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 the fact that they were silent they they assumed or they took it that that would would stand for not guilty
3: and just to kind of highlight how long this you know procedure was it actually cost 17 million
4: this whole like kind of court proceedings and legal costs that is a lot of bunts a lot of bunts So in December of 2003, Bunting was convicted of committing 11 murders and Wagner was convicted of committing 10 murders. Of which he had only confessed to three of those. Jamie Vlasakis pleaded guilty to four of the murders, and we will we'll get onto him shortly. And in 2004, Mark Hayden was convicted on five counts of assisting with the murders, of which he only admitted to two of them. Yeah, very very long trial, and Jamie Vlasakis was actually on the stand for I believe 22 days. He you know, obviously quite quite
3: a lot younger. They they targeted him as being the person that was going to break. Obviously, uh, Wagner and Bunting, very strong-minded, the main ringleaders really of, of the group. So they probably think they couldn't crack him, but they thought Jamie would be the would, would, be, would be the way through there. Jamie was quite quick to turn on his co-conspirators, providing the investigators with over 2,000 pages of transcript in his second interview, naming motives, the crimes and the victims. He was also granted a suppression order, keeping his name and image out of the media, you know, for him providing the evidence there. And he made a 800-page police statement. The term people say, sung like a canary.
4: Hmm. That's, uh, a, that's a,
3: a choir of canaries. That is a yeah, definitely Ben. You're either. Thank you.
4: So Justice Brian Ross Martin determined that Bunting was the ringleader and sentenced him to 11 consecutive terms of life imprisonment without the possibility of release. Wagner was sentenced to 10 consecutive life sentences under the same conditions. And at his sentencing, he stated from the dock, paedophiles were doing terrible things to children. The authorities didn't do anything about it. I decided to take action and I took that action. Thank you. Jamie Vlasakis was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences with a non-parole period of 26 years. So I think that basically means he has to serve a minimum of 26 years despite giving all that information. Yeah, I think one, one thing I, I read was that they approached Jamie Vlasakis for what information he had on the grounds that that might
1: mm, support his yeah.
4: a, a more lenient sentence. But obviously all that talking hasn't really yeah hasn't really helped. And Mark Hayden who was convicted on five counts of assisting murders uh, was sentenced to 25 years with a non-parole period of 18 years.
3: Yeah, so with this case being like Ben said so big and and you know so gruesome, there was um more than 250 suppression orders which would basically prevent publication of the details of the case. I guess cuz copycats and Things like that. But in early 2011, a judge lifted the remaining orders in response to requests by the producers of the film Snowtown. So they're able to dramatise that and kind of go into the details of it a lot more. Snowtown, obviously, being affiliated with all this crime, became a kind of morbid, like, dark tourism spot. People going to the bank and wanted to see the bank. Um, Snowtown actually were rumoured to want to change the name of the town to Rose Town. Uh, that's not probably the name I'll go for, but... They didn't do it anyway. Uh, in the end, and apparently, like some of the locals would would stop saying they're from Snowtown now because of just or they kind of linked to it. They just say the, the Mid North instead
4: so i mean in terms of a motive um the motive as we mentioned it kind of changed as the case progressed and as their numbers increased but uh in terms of searching for a clear motive based on jamie Vlasakis's testimonies it's believed that initially uh, the motive was that to rid the streets of pedophiles homosexuals or people that were weak
3: people that were weak it's like that's yes yeah. i guess that's kind of they're going back to the nazi and nazi kind of ideology yeah, but at the beginning they were like oh no we're we just yeah you know, like like Wagner says in his kind of testimony at the docks. He's like, we were killing paedophiles because
4: I'm here because the police did nothing. Yeah, motive changed as the case went on. The group are regarded as frill killers. So as they claimed more victims, obviously Bunting, particularly towards the end when he's literally just picking off people for not really warming to him or not mm. coming to his not not uh, spurning his advances. Yeah. Um, financial gain, a power, the fact that they are anti-authority uh, and they believe that they were ridding the streets of, of paedophiles and homosexuals. There's a lot of kind of similarities with Bunting and Charles Manson, I found in terms of manipulating people to do, you know, people that were potentially less intelligent than him, taking yeah. advantage of them to carry out actions on his behalf, manipulating young people with with alcohol and drugs.
3: A lot, of, I guess as well, there's a lot of outcasts that he kind of... Made them feel like they were part of something, which obviously was a horrible, dark thing. He made them feel part of, but yeah, it's it's, it's, a, it's a horrifying case. And you know, for people that haven't seen the movie, definitely recommend it. It's, yeah. it's a great film. Just to kind of highlight how dark this was. Obviously, the director was able to obtain a lot of the information about the case that was, you know, originally away from the public. And then he said he'd research this before going to bed and have the most vivid, horrible nightmares. And one of the policemen um, who went to the crime scene said it, it was a scene from the worst nightmare you've ever had. I don't think any of us were prepared to what, see what we saw. But yeah, I recommend people watching the film. It is, it is very good.
4: Yeah, it's a, a harrowing watch. For, you're interested in things like this, Tom. So in terms of the bank, after holding an open house... Um, The bank, with a four-bedroom attached house, was placed on auction in February of 2012, but only reached half of its reserve price of $200,000. So the community then raised $700 for charity through charging an entrance fee, and the property sold later that year for just over $185,000. The new owners intended to live in the house while running a business from the bank. Mm. They stated that they would install a plaque um, in commemoration of the victims. I wouldn't be able to live in no uh, the house that john bunting lived in and buried two bodies in the garden of was demolished by its new owners uh the south australian housing trust
3: so yeah they're all obviously still serving their time now in prison very unlikely any of them will get out uh this is the time the episode where we tend to do our looky-likes i've only got one uh, for wagner i think ben you've got one
4: for i've got a few for bunting go on then shall i go for it yeah you go for um... it um <laughs> I wrote it here as well a lot of stick for me having uh, too many in the first two episodes so I've kept it short and yeah. then I've not
3: because they're not if they yeah. if they don't look anything like them then you'll get a stick
4: so of the three I mean John Bunting and, and Mark Hayden look in the in the lineup like really close and Wagner is clearly the odd one out uh, for John Bunting I've gone for a small skinny Keith from the UK office because he's got a beard and little glasses and that beard and glasses okay. yeah um uh, John Bunting also looks like superhuman. Massive wrestling fan and, and stuntman. He jumps off things and jumps uh, off Stuntman,
3: he's just a Twitter guy that does things to harm himself and people retweet it.
4: Looks a little bit like John Bunting. This one is probably my favourite one. Um, he looks like the guy from I'm Just Waiting for a Mate. That's probably the best one. Thank you. And he's Aussie as well, isn't he? Yeah, and he's Aussie as well. how the collision with your car happen, mate? What collision? Well, the one that's got your, all your wheels and stuff twisted up and your, bot, your, your front bumper bars hanging off one. Well, I'm just waiting for a mate, as I said. Who's your mate? Hi. Hey? Who's your mate? James. Um, also a little bit of Ringo Starr. No, you lost me again. Okay. And I also just couldn't get over when in the picture of, um, of them being uh, brought into court or into the docks just the height difference between yeah. uh, Wagner and um, Bunting w- Wagner flip, flips the bird yes yeah for Mark Hayden it kind of looks a little bit like a, a Charles Manson and Saddam Hussein hybrid and for Robert Wagner a tiny bit of Louis CK just a t- tiny bit
3: uh, so i got Wagner looks like a young Pat Roach uh, who has played Bomber in Alfie Desenpet very niche I struggled because I think Bunting just looks like an everyday guy definitely um, so it's kind of hard is to is a scary thought yeah it is a scary thought but yeah that is the case of the Snowtown murders all the bodies in the barrel um,
4: oof don't feel good feel like I felt after I watched the film just need to go for a long walk and fruit juice fruit juice just have a five alive so if you enjoyed today's
3: episode don't forget to give us a like and a subscribe and why not hit the notification bell so you're all, so you know when the episodes come out it helps us an awful lot
4: absolutely this is episode three of a 12 episode series so we've got lots more in store we can't wait to share uh, the forthcoming episodes with you thank you so much for everyone that's been there from the beginning thank you for people that are kind of just discovering us for the first time we really appreciate all of the feedback message us on instagram facebook patreon patreon Leave us a comment on YouTube. We uh, we like to. We're the guys that don't uh, ever ignore. We never ignore. Is that's bold. Sometimes we might miss or delete comments. As always, uh, on the socials at Could Murder a Pod, um, you know, feel free to give us a message. Um, if you're an audio listener, every episode has a visual uh, version of it on YouTube, so why not check that out? Yeah, and
3: be sure to be let us give us a review if you listen to iTunes or if you follow the page on Spotify. It really helps us for the for the audio listeners. Uh, thank you very much, guys, and uh, tell your friends. Tell your friends, and like we always say, guys. That's usually when you say, Wait,
4: "Is that me?" Okay. Huh? I thought.
3: You say, we say this all the time.
4: You didn't say keep doing what you're doing.
3: I said, like we always say, guys, you say we say this all the time. I said keep oh, doing what you do. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like we always say, guys, we say this all the time.
4: Keep doing what you're doing. Unless it's, um, you know, renting out banks and...
3: You can rent out a bank, that's fine, but...
4: Illegal weapons, kangaroos. What is it about? Take care, guys. See you next week.
0: You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast. Written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Additional voiceover by Pedro Gardner and Daniel Payne Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert of Boston Sound. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. Theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Could Murder a Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Could Murder a Pod. And don't forget to tell all of your friends. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.